The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazelle Mami, and I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. How are you guys doing today? Pretty good. I'm pretty tired, but I'm all right. <laughs> Matt is wearing these amazing army pants today. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I actually, I actually call them. They're called the "I Give Up" pants. <laughs> That's their name. Well, Matt, did you have any favorite TV moments in the past week? I don't know if I would use the word favorite necessarily, but I got into um, a rather long thread on Twitter debating whether or not this particular drop of blood on Hannibal was excessive. There were many drops of blood in the premiere episode. There were quite a few drops of blood. (laughs) Which drop of blood? This specific drop of blood was uh, one that falls off of a rabbit in a, um, a butcher shop. And there's a shot of it landing in a puddle on the floor, and it's this enormous close-up of the blood drop landing in the puddle, and it erupts like it looks like a crown or a flower or something. I thought it was incredibly beautiful, um, but the argument was whether or not this particular drop of blood was too much. And I sort of feel like, how can you even talk about Hannibal in those terms? It's like the entire thing is too much. (laughs) Right. Yeah, why that drop? I know, why that drop and not all the others? And and also, like, this is the kind of room where they can't even cross a room without doing a montage. So I feel like we're, like, way beyond, like, the excessive train left the station a long time Mm -hmm. ago. Margaret? My favorite moment, and it is actually just a genuine favorite, uh, was from the Tonys on Sunday. Sydney Lucas, who's, I think, 11 years old. She was a nominee. She sang the song Ring of Keys from Fun Home, which is a musical based on Alison Bechdel's memoir about her sort of fraught relationship, especially with her father, particularly pegged to when she came out as a lesbian. And the song is this little girl is at a uh, like a diner or luncheonette with her dad and it's the first time she ever sees a butch lesbian and this woman walks in and she is you know and then the song's like short hair and these dungarees and and the little girl's like I know you there's something about us that's the same and it's just so beautiful and interesting and I think you know we sometimes discount the capacity for children to understand things about themselves and I think especially if we think about I think a lot of times you think about sexual identity and sexuality as the same thing. And I think it's possible as a kid to know things about your sexual identity without having a developed sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. And those things can be different. Yeah, that's true. And it's normal as a kid to know, like, things about yourself, whether, like, before certainly you have any kind of sexual desires, you're still a person with an identity. And so this song is beautiful and it's also really – she doesn't know how to articulate what's happening. And it starts with a couple of false starts where she's like, I feel hmm, I'm so uh," and and just her sort of like getting closer and backing off and not even knowing how to start thinking about and articulating these things that are true about herself. And the way they did on the Tonys, it's similar to the way it's in the show. But grown up Allison is sort of telling you in flashbacks. And we so we see grown up Allison say, you know, my dad and I had every were very much alike and my dad and I were nothing alike. And what I didn't know is that we were both gay. And so you see small Allison um, having this awakening, and it just, it really cut me in half. I was a mess. Oh, wow, <laughs> I was like wow. sobbing, That's and I've uh, been like listening to the original cast recording, and it's just, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> well, <laughs> the rest of the well Tonys was not great, but that, that moment was not something I will forget. It sounds like me during this tribute to Stevie Wonder a few months ago. I think I think we I think we, I'm serious. I'm totally serious. Were you an emotional wreck? I was a wreck. I was a wreck. My kids were like, "Dad, is there something wrong? Are you okay? Do you need to go? Do you need to go to the emergency room?" I'm like, "This is lovely," you know. 
I think we tend to forget how powerful a well-delivered song can be until we see it on TV. Like, there's almost nothing better. Gazelle, did you have a TV moment? You know, I didn't have a moment, per se. I spent a lot of the past few days catching up on Orange is the New Black, because mm. I have not seen the second season yet, and a lot of the second season is focused on characters' backstories. And I was just kind of struck by how well cast a lot of the younger versions of the inmates are. And particularly, I just watched the one episode that focuses on Crazy Eyes. And I mean, I, I'm just... great. Yeah, it was such an amazing episode. Her as a child, her as kind of a- approaching adolescence, like every... She's just so perfectly who you would imagine her to be. And yeah. it gives so much context to her character and... Just a devastating episode. So I'm finally caught up with the rest of the world now. So I just thought I'd announce that. <laughs> but, it's especially <laughs> timely because Orange is the New Black season three comes out this Friday. Friday. So yeah. we'll be discussing that on right. next week's podcast. Great. This week we'll be discussing season three of NBC's Hannibal and the second season of AMC's Halt and Catch Fire. At the end of the episode, we'll also answer any questions from you, our listeners, as well. If you have any questions for us, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. So Hannibal is, I wanted to say it's a Vulture favorite, but... It's I, really maybe, just mine. It's, it's really favorite. maybe just Matt's favorite? No, I, I mean... Me and Greg Quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a show that's unlike anything else that's on TV. I think we can agree on that. I thought we'd start by talking about it so that people who haven't seen it can maybe get a better understanding of it. Seasons one and two are much more of a procedural format, and season two ends with this blood ba- blood bath blood bath <laughs> <laughs> that um, that wounds Will and Abby. And season three, we begin completely out of this context with Hannibal in Italy with Doctor Bedelia, who's played by Gillian Anderson, and there's no sign of Will, played by Hugh Dancy. So the new season is so different structurally. I was wondering what you guys thought about this change of pace. Well, I really like it. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Orange is the New Black right before this because what I felt about the the third season of Hannibal is that it is taking its cues from the kind of streaming or binge-watching model, which is they're not getting hung up on continuity from week to week in the way that they used to when it was primarily being thought of as a network show. The structure originally was very, it was very much like the following, and it was kind of weird having the following and Hannibal on at the same time because it was, you know, Hannibal is a serial killer who is himself creating or enabling other serial killers, and nobody at the FBI really knows this he's, because he's, he's, a, he's an advisor to them. He's a psychological advisor. And that's kind of what's happening on the following as well. But Hannibal is just so much more artful about it. But they did still have this thing where there was kind of a killer of the week. Like mm-hmm. there was a monster of the week. It was almost like the X Files, although not every week on the X Files was a monster of the week episode. There was, you know, there was mythology too. But they've gotten away from that in the third season, mm-hmm. you know, clearly. And we, as you said, we we don't see Will, we don't see Jack Crawford, we don't see any of that. It's all Hannibal in in Paris and then Florence. And then uh, I'm not giving anything away. Eventually, you have to get around to them. But second week, we return to these other characters, and and they're not worried so much about week-to-week continuity. It's almost like we're getting a series of short stories with these characters that are fairly self-contained, and they're going to start to intertwine. And also, there's more flashback material. And the editing just seems crazier to me. Like, I thought it were pretty adventurous in how they told the story Mm -hmm. the last two seasons, but here they're just 
nuts. I mean, really, like it's really really something else. Yeah. It's interesting you say binge watch because someone commented on the recap that we posted and they said to people who haven't seen it that they would advise them to binge watch but that it would change them as a human being. <laughs> they did. <laughs> I think that's agree probably with that. true. Yeah. And I should say that I don't really like serial killer stories. Mm-hmm. I don't like them. I've never really been a big fan. I mean, I admire something like the original Oscar winning Silence of the Lambs for the craft of it. But I am not interested in the stories of serial killers, especially as they're presented in the movies, because I feel like they, and this is, you know, probably a fairly geeky way to look at it, but I feel like this obsession with serial killers is keeping genre fiction from dealing with the real world, and I think a way that it can. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a lot of real monsters out there, a lot of real killers, and they're not mad, you know, they're not diabolical geniuses with dungeons in their basements who know, you know, like Mm -hmm. everybody's got their own bat cave on these shows, and... And that's a kind of escapism that I usually can't get behind unless it's done with so much imagination as I think it is here. And then it becomes its own thing. And what it becomes, I think, is a dream. The entire thing is a dream. There's nothing, there's no part of this that's coded as real or a dream. And um, I've never seen a show where the entire show could be described that way. Like, not even Twin Peaks could be described that way. And that's something new for network TV. And it might be something new for cable as well. And I like that. We actually had a listener question this week about Hannibal. It's a question from Renee, and she asked, how do you think NBC is able to get away with some of the violence, gore, and mature content on display every week on Hannibal? For my money, the visual quality and subject matter of that program has a very premium cable quality to it. I agree with that. I think a lot of it comes down to the business model, which is that this is a show that happens to air on NBC, but it is not an NBC show. It's a, it's a show that is financed internationally mm-hmm. through a variety of sources, which is why they're able to have such great production values. And basically, an independent entity has come to NBC and said, here is a television show which we have mostly financed. You want to kick in on this, and you can run it in the United States, but somebody else is running it in other countries. And I'm sure there's like an incredible octopus-tentacled web of ancillary rights on this thing, but it's not an NBC show. And and I think they're probably grateful to get a high-quality product that they're not having to cover most of the costs of. And for that reason, they'll give it some freedom. Right. And even the low ratings don't seem to bother them that much because it's not like they're looking at their bottom line going, why are we spending money on I this? See. Because they're really not, like, not in the way that they're spending money on a lot of their other shows that are that are network shows. Right. And in terms of how they get away with it, I think part of it is that not that many people are watching Hannibal, honestly. <laughs> and I think that, like, whatever sort of widespread outcry you might imagine as a rallying point around a show, that just isn't happening. I think partially because Hannibal just doesn't, I mean, it's a low-rated it's a show. Difficult yeah. show it's a t- to watch. And in terms of its In a violence, lot of ways, difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Emotionally. Emotionally difficult, vi- difficult because of the violence, and also difficult because of the plot. It doesn't come up and hand you the plot in the way that most shows do. Like, a lot of times, you, it takes you five or ten minutes before you figure out what in the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. You have to really strain sometimes. I think in terms of its execution, certainly Hannibal is much more artistic, but in terms of just nuts and bolts, how violent is it? I think a lot of shows are pretty violent. I think they're, if you've spent any time watching like a Criminal Minds kind of, Criminal Minds, NCIS, like any of the CSIs, like there was some really perverse violence on those shows too. So stuff like, oh, someone put like nicotine poisoning within a condom. This is a real one. When a man put on this condom, then he would like, was killed by the nicotine in it like via 
his dick. And it's just like, okay. Mm, like, <laughs> I mean, I guess like, you know, you shuffle the index cards in the writer's room and it's like, what is our weird combination of factors <laughs> yes. here? But I think in terms of just like actual violence, there are plenty of shows that are extremely violent, plenty of shows that are very dark, plenty of shows that have, even on network, pretty extreme capacities for depravity. So I, I yes. think we we sort of peg Hannibal as the most or a very mm-hmm. of those things. And in some ways that's true. But I think in a lot of ways, the violence isn't what what is really definitive for it. No. And, and it's context- a lot of it's contextual. And I always tell people when I, I have discussions about violence a lot, because it's something that matters to people, violence and entertainment. They often will say, I sense an inconsistency. How can you like Hannibal? You've complained that this other show or this movie is cruel or sadistic or too violent and the answer is I don't care about the violence itself the violence itself has no effect on me at all what offends me or upsets me or makes me think that something has gone too far or is sick or twisted or evil or bad for me is the point of view like what you know what kind of world is this violence occurring in and that's why I was uncomfortable with some parts of some shows that I liked a lot, like The Sopranos, which I think is a brilliant show. There were there were times where I felt like the show was empathizing with the people who were committing the violence a little too much. And I took issue with that in some of my writing mm-hmm. on the show. And that's not to take anything away from the totality of The Sopranos, just to say that's an instance where the amount of violence on The Sopranos is nowhere near what you see on Hannibal, but because Hannibal puts this frame around it, and I mean literally a frame, like you're going to a museum looking at a painting, it doesn't feel as violent somehow. To Matt. To me. To me. <laughs> yeah. To me. Right, which is not yes. at all my experience of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is Tell us, just, it's too much for me. Mm. And I'm somebody who in real life is not squeamish. Like, I'm a good person to go to the emergency room with. Like, I'm, right, like, I'm pretty calm mm-hmm. in, in an actual instance of physical harm. But, yeah, man, it's just too much for me on Hannibal. And I'm somebody who doesn't like scary movies. I don't like any body horror stuff that's just like not my taste not my genre Cronenberg is not your bag nope nope and that's not like a virtue jet right I don't this is not me saying like and therefore it's bad it's just really not for me Um, and on Hannibal it's relentless there's there's so much of it there's almost no point that's not in some capacity connected to it it is very extreme I mean the scene of like even when it's done as like fantasy we're still seeing very literal depictions of it so Gillian Anderson up to her armpit in a throat and then we're hearing all these like rich gurgle sounds and stuff yes, and it was yes, just like oh. you know what like I don't actually want to experience this. that like this is yeah, not yeah. something I'm I'm missing in my life well for me it's violent in the way that when I go to a museum and I'm seeing a painting of the crucifixion the crucifixion of a saint that's the kind of violence that I see in this. Or when I look at a Francis Bacon painting, that kind of psychological violence where, you know, people's faces are melting or it looks like their parts of their body are coming off or something. But, And, again, your mileage may vary, like you say. Like, I'm not disagreeing with anything <laughs> you're saying about your reaction to the violence because that's a thing. I personally have a very strong reaction to violence that is um, much lower in amount but but I feel has a different point of view or no point of view on the violence. Absolutely. Like, that's why sure. I'm offended by the following. I think the following is a sick, sick, sick show. Like a disgusting show on pretty much every level. <laughs> really. I can't, I can't tell you how much I despise that show because I feel like it's just taking an electric cattle prod and zapping the audience every five minutes and there's no art that goes with it. There's no art. Like, I want a little art. It's like, buy me a drink first, at least. You know what I mean? Right. I think I think as much as I, Hannibal is not a show that I particularly love, it's not a show I object to in the way that there are other shows mm-hmm. whose use of violence Like the CBS shows to. you were mentioning. Sure. Too. The CBS right. shows are a blight. Those crime shows 
And and a lot of the special victims unit type shows are a blight on humanity. I'm not kidding. I think they're making people stay indoors and not want to go out. They're scared that their children are going to be kidnapped in white vans. And <laughs> I'm sure people's mothers and grandmothers and, and grandfathers won't go outdoors because of CBS. Les Moonves, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> And I also think it's worth mentioning that in spite of or maybe because of Hannibal's overwhelming violence, it is rarely sexualized violence and it's never like rapey violence against women stuff. No. That said, plenty of women are still killed on the show. There's no like, Certainly. right? It doesn't have some like free pass on that. But it's not the same kind of female despair, mm-hmm. particularly sexualized it's violence. It's not getting off on pain. It's not getting off on pain and fear in that way. We, not I in that think, way. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. definitely, look, There's there are scenes of women being chased because they're afraid for their life. And they should be because then they get murdered. Like, right, that has happened. Right. That happens in, I think it was this week's episode, right? Like, you know, we have that. But it's not the same constant rape threat that, no, that a lot of other shows it's use. It's not. And also, you know, I will say that show absolutely objectifies women, but in the way that a lot of paintings do. You know, like a sculptural objects. Like, you get a long look at Gillian Anderson's bare back. In that first episode, and she's the way she's lit and framed, like it makes her back look like a lute or something. Like right. she's, it's mm-hmm. admiring her as a beautiful object, and then five minutes later, you get to admire Mads Mikkelsen's Right, torso. I was going to say, I, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I and the find... food is photographed that <laughs> yeah. way too, like the food right. and the clothes and the rooms. It's like they're they're objectifying every freaking thing that passes in front of the lens. So I feel like we're on pretty good ground there. Well, I think also part of that ties into the show's real arm's length. Right. So I think some especially network shows, especially shows that fetishize violence, want very much for you to feel like you're there. And that's something that Hannibal does not at all want you to feel. Matt talked a little bit about how it feels like a dream. And sometimes there is that feeling of like, oh, I know I'm at school, but this isn't what my school looks like. Right. Like There is that sort of (laughs) disorientation of like, I know this is the party that I was invited to, but I don't recognize anyone here. Right. Like that kind of like weird sense. I think they accomplish that in a couple of ways. One is very distinctive camera styles, right? So so the, the visuals. But then we're right. also really removed from stuff. We see a lot of stuff in very slow motion, in extreme close-up, in disorienting close-up, right? Yes. Like some things mm-hmm. that it's like, what is, oh, is that like an organ? It's like, ha-ha, it's a grape, right? Like, yeah, yes, they do that a lot. That's like a, and that's a Hitchcock thing to do. Sure. That's and a so Hitchcock thing. we have thing. all of these instances where there's no camera work that feels verite style right there's no. no you are there there's no i am also at this party no. um and so everything that... is a everything is a still life of a bowl of fruit everything like yeah. they're like they're like like let's paint this and we see like over and over in the show instances of things genuinely being in museum cases certainly this season we have this incredible room i don't hall yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pavilion of that and so much of the show is characters recontextualizing other people's behavior well they are yes and and in fact there's this whole sort of sub theme of art art and criticism there are artists who are established who are famous like Hannibal, whoever this Hannibal, they don't know that it's Hannibal. Well, now they do because he killed all those people at the end of season two. But up until that point, he was sort of like Banksy. He was like the Banksy of serial yeah. killing. Like people knew that there was some guy who was probably behind a lot of these murders, but they didn't know who it was. Now he's out in the open, but he's hiding. But he's the master artist. And there, there are these other serial killers who are sort of like, what do I need to do to get to impress Jackson Pollock so that I can apprentice with him? And then you've got Will Graham, who is like in here. Just go down this rabbit hole with me. That is the is the critic. Will Graham is the critic, and he is sort of intuitively trying to guess. You know, is this the the artist we're looking for, or is it an imitator? 
is this a real thing or is it a forgery? Like this killing, is this killing committed by the same, is this sculptural object? And the killings often look like literally sculptural objects. Mm-hmm. They look like things like, you know, the wood sculptures of James Searles or something like some that. some of them or, are actually staged on wood sculptures. They I mean, actually like, are. Like, I remember in season one with like the antlers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, there is... Um, it's like the Whitney, it's the Whitney Biennial of death, right. basically. So we're not even really being figurative here. They're they're literally staged as sculptures. Um, they are. Very much like a like a bust in a Roman, whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're actually having cadavers like staged that way. Yeah, so and that also pulls us back, like you were talking about. That pulls us back from the thi- from the you know we're not seeing any nothing on the show is real except for the feelings of the characters. That's the only thing that's real, I think. Can we talk a little bit about the black and white flashbacks in this premiere episode? We we have a clip. Basically, what's happening here is Hannibal is eating Abel's appendages and feeding them to him as well and while they have sort of a philosophical conversation about it. Yeah, this is so really not a Margaret show. A clip here. And with these rarefied dishes you so carefully prepare, do we all taste different? Everyone has their flavor. Cannibalism was standard behavior among our ancestors. The missing link was only missing because we ate him. This isn't cannibalism, Abel. It's only cannibalism if we're equals. This is only cannibalism if you eat me. But you just feel this is the natural order of things. Everybody gets at. Be he fat or be he lean. With my last leg standing next to me, I should still wrestle with the urges to fight or flee. It's called terminal restlessness. The body fills with adrenaline and feels compelled to go, go, go. Go, go, go. I've already gone up and gone. This is posthumous. You're not dead yet, Abel. You still have to eat. No, I don't. At this point, there's absolutely nothing I have to do. But I shouldn't spoil the fairy tale, should I? What did you make of these sequences? They they also have that kind of dreamlike. They absolutely do, and actually, it's funny because you know, as much as I adore the show, like we have, we I feel that we must we must concede how ludicrous it is, like how <laughs> ludicrous, how silly, how sort of extravagantly absurd the whole thing is, and that the, and I mean, then is it supposed to be funny? In a, in I think a way? it's supposed to be very funny. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be very funny. I think it's supposed to be funny on two levels. One, you know, level one is the characters are themselves funny. I think Hannibal's a stitch, and a lot of the other characters are funny too. And Will Graham is funny because he's not funny at all. Like, I find him really funny because he is not funny. Like, he has no sense of himself at all, and that's what makes him great. And then level two is this philosophical sort of debate that's going on between Hannibal and all the other characters, and particularly Bedelia. And they're very sincere. It's like they're sincere about these concepts. They're not kidding, and yet they are kidding. Like, the language is so arch and so pretentious. I mean, you know, I don't like that word, but it's but sometimes it applies. It's absolutely pretentious. And like it goes to the and but they're pushing it. Like they're aware of it. They're having fun with it. And they're going so far that it almost turns into that scene in, in Love and Death where Woody Allen and Diane Keaton are having the debate about subjectivity. And, you know, like, but subjectivity is objective. <laughs> you know, it's like it's always 3 a.m. in the dorm room on this show. I feel like it's the most self-indulgent show I've ever seen. Uh, that yeah. said, like, <laughs> the things it's indulging in are occasionally worthy of indulgence but it's like at every moment the show is like treat yourself right like yeah. <laughs> it's like i don't know could we really have like 
oh, basically like a blood tornado. It's like, I think, <laughs> right? It's like, I don't know. Are we really going to do like a total like dissection of this? And it's going to be this extreme and this like really inside of like a rib cage. It's like, I don't know. If not now, when? Right? So like there's just like all of these moments like, where I feel let like. The rest of the, let the rest of the art world catch up with us. Why not? Yeah. So, so I mean, there, like there's no restraint whatsoever. No. Par- as part of this show. And. I think for Matt, that that is one of the joys of it. And for me, it's just, you know, it's so far down a path that I am not interested in that I'll wait while you guys go on the roller coaster. Like, I'll hold your bag. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, I'll I'll be right here when you guys are done. But it's just like, it's not for me. Matt, you mentioned Bedelia. She's such a fascinating character. And a lot of this premiere episode was her back and forths with Hannibal. What do you think her attraction is to Hannibal? (laughs) I mean, she seems to want to leave, but not. Well, I mean, you know, I think at a base level, it's that uh, they're the two most beautiful people on the show. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so there's that. It's like, you know, how does Rosalind Russell not end up with Cary Grant, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And uh, I realize I just compared Hannibal to Cary Grant, which (laughs) makes me pretty sick. But um, (laughs) Yeah, you're like, oh, he's just like charming, dapper, all-American sweetheart guy. He's he's Satan. He's Satan. (laughs) He's a very, very dapper Satan, this guy. You know, they're like a bunch of stone vampires, the way they talk to each other. But. But my theory about that, and I have a theory about everything on the show, is like I feel like she more so than any other character represents us. She represents us mm. in the way that she is attracted to and yet repelled by Hannibal and by the world that he inhabits. And she's sort of as his therapist, you know, former, but still really the way she talks to him. It's like she's trying to get him to come back to some semblance of moral normalcy. Like, is mm-hmm. there a way in? Is this person so far gone? Right, but she you thinks know? she's pulling him, but he thinks he's pulling her. He thinks and he's pulling right, her. So, so there's plenty of instances where it's like, why does she go along with this? Like, uh, he's convincing her to, like, right? right? Like, he's. Right. it's not like he's some rube, right? Like, he's also a master manipulator. He is, yeah. Well, there's, like, some moments in this episode where... I feel like he almost there are flickers of humanity in him or where there's a moment after the young poet comes over for dinner Mm -hmm. and he leaves and Bedelia is like, you let him go. And Hannibal says, what would you have me do? (laughs) I'm like, what? Like, like, I thought you you do the opposite. (laughs) Well, but I love see, but that's 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 one of the things that I think makes Mads Mikkelsen's Hannibal the greatest of all Hannibals. And I say that as a big time Brian Cox fan from Manhunter. And, and, you know, Anthony Hopkins is no slouch, but. (laughs) But Mads Mikkelsen, it makes this guy confounding in a way that other lectors have not been confounding. And and he does that by making making you believe that Hannibal is a psychopath or sociopath. Like he's completely – he's able to stand outside of everything in the way that a theatrical villain would, like a Shakespearean villain or like uh, Satan in Paradise Lost – and yet, at the same time, he is in this world, and he is really feeling it. Like when he's in therapy with one of his patients, and they're telling him a, they're telling him a story that is painful to them, that takes something out of them as he's as they're telling it. He's listening to them, and he's not faking being interested. He really is interested, and he's not faking being sympathetic to them. He's not faking feeling what they're feeling. It's all very real. And yet, at the same time, five minutes later, he's going to kill them. Right. You know, and like, and I like my favorite, some of my favorite kind of popular art is stuff where you're not quite sure how to take it. Like, what am I supposed to make of this? Like, I feel this way, but also this other way. 
And I don't like binaries where it's like, just pick a side, pop culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I like. I think it's much more fun to be struggling with that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, that's, think, and he does that. I think it's also an example of intermittent response, right? So mm. basically, monkeys in a cage, if you hit the lever and get a treat, they sort of max out. And you hit the lever and never get a treat, they stop bothering. But if you hit the lever and you sometimes get a treat... You'll hit that fucking lever till you die. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. And that's yeah, I think yeah. we can all agree that like that has been true in our life experiences as well, right? That like an intermittent response from someone maybe makes you text them a lot more if they only get back <laughs> to you sometimes. And so I think some of the stuff the way that Hannibal operates within the show and then the way that we operate as viewers watching him hmm. is some of that intermittent response, right? Of like sometimes he acts this way, the way that I like. And I'm going to keep coming back because I know that it's out there, right? And if he always acted that way, I'd know it and I wouldn't have to worry. And if he never acted that way, I could just stop. <laughs> well, you realize you basically described the viewer and the show Hannibal as being in an abusive relationship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, I don't think it, like, so intermittent response is not inherently abusive. No, right? no, I know. Um, but, but, but there is a toxicity, I think, to, yeah. to the, the draw that, of it. Yes. I also think in Masochistic terms of, almost in the way mm-hmm. that we love it. Right. I also think in terms of comparing him to other Hannibals, yeah. this Hannibal and the whole show Hannibal is like extremely erotic yeah. in a way that I don't think Silence of the Lambs has the same kind of attitude about Hannibal Lecter's like potential eroticism. Because this show is very obsessed with touch, right? So there's a lot of really extreme close-ups of texture, of fabric, of, of luxurious like gravy pouring. And it's like, ew, it's like someone's pancreas or whatever. Yeah. Right? So we're very focused mm, on... Pancreas. Yeah. <laughs> we're very focused on the way things feel. And, and we see like hands like washing over a shoulder or or like like tapping your fingers on a desk yes. or like centrally like massaging a pen or whatever right so it's like very very consumed with the idea of like how things feel and obviously how things taste and look and, sm- and we have all of these sort of sensory and then like sensual moments i think which make yeah. the show especially for a lot of its fans an extremely like sexy driven show it's not just interesting like psychologically mm-hmm. there is like a, a profound eroticism that's the that's part of the well that's of the and that's a big, the main appeal for me is that is that texture that you're talking about because the show feels rich and decadent and makes me feel alive when I'm watching it because of the, the extremity with which it presents everything like I, that's what I like more and more than anything else like the performances the lighting you know the the staging of the violence, the look of the cities at night, all of that stuff is great. But every the umbrella that's kind of enclosing everything else is appetite. Like I like, as you were saying, like you were kind of jokingly saying <laughs> earlier, it's like here have another slice of cake. I mean that's kind of what it is. Like the sheer excess with which everything is presented. But I like that, and I think maybe in a way that's sort of the appeal of the show. That's why it doesn't feel as violent to me. That's why it doesn't feel like an ugly show, a mean show, a dark show. Because, like, in its own, this is so perverse, but it's a life-affirming <laughs> show about serial killers. Oh, you are so like, full of shit. It are makes me, me? want to go out and, you know, <laughs> eat and have a drink and go to the park. I love it. The, the TV show we're discussing is Hannibal, and it airs Thursday nights at 10 p.m. on NBC. Halt and Catch Fire follows a group of computer programmers in Texas, the quote-unquote Silicon Prairie, in the 1980s. And reviews for its first season were a little lukewarm, but critics this season have been raving about this new direction that the show has supposedly taken, which focuses on the women, Donna and Cameron, who are working together starting up an online gaming company called Mutiny. We have a clip here from Sunday night's episode, where they're talking to a potential investor. 32 plus additional funding to cover operations through the end of the fiscal year. Then what I about think... kids? Excuse me? Do you have or want kids? 
No. I have two. What does that have to do with it? Well, when I invest in a company, I don't just bet on an idea. I bet on the people. Success is no Sunday drive. It's not another to-do tacked to the fridge. If you two, as you claim, are really going to run this business, I need to know that you're fully committed long-term. Even over, you know, biological imperatives. Sorry, are you going to give us the money or not? What do you guys think about this new focus on the woman characters? Scenes like this seem to put a little bit more of an emphasis on what they might be going through in this field. I mean, I approve, but not because it's women, right? Like, I like it. I'm interested in stories about women. But I think the bigger issue for Halt and Catch Fire was that I ultimately became very not interested in the stories that they were trying to tell in season one. The point here is not that, like, it's more important to tell stories about women than men. I don't think that's true. I think it's important that we tell stories about women because that's underserved. But... The bigger issue was that Halt and Catch Fire had a really tough time figuring out who was interesting on this show. And they thought it was going to be Lee Pace. And the truth was, like, that character just wasn't that interesting. And they thought maybe it was going to be Gordon. And it wasn't that interesting. And frankly, even Cameron at a certain point became Mm -hmm. less and less interesting. And then it was like, oh, who's left? It's like, Donna. (laughs) I'm like, Donna's interesting. Donna's cool. Like, okay. And there's more sort of unpredictability to her character. Not that the character herself is erratic at all, but that it's somebody about whom we know a lot less and she's a little bit harder to read than the sort of very obvious way that we've seen Gordon or Cameron Mm -hmm. depicted. I think maybe we're overstating how much better season two is than season one. I think it's better. I don't think it's like night and day better. I'm not like, holy shit, everyone like, stop everything. Start watching Halt and Catch Fire. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay. I mean, it's definitely better, but I, I'm still I still feel like it's a show that struggles to make emotional choices. I would agree with that, and I would say that, you know, I wasn't a big fan of the show in its first season, although I appreciated the fact that it was about a world that we haven't seen before. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Silicon Valley is the present, and this is you know, 30 years ago. So it's almost like the mad men of tech, in a way. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and to the extent of having the main character be basically Don Draper. I mean, like the way they presented him and the way that he he kind of, you know, came onto the show. Like he's a man of secrets. He's, Mm -hmm. you know, he's kind of your anti-hero who looks good in a suit and can talk a Scotsman out of a quarter, as they said on Mad Men. But I feel like he's not really that anymore. And yet I feel like they're going in a direction that feels like a Mad Men sort of direction. All I mean by that is they're sort of bringing you into this world without holding your hand too much. You're you're sort of having to understand what's going on in context. Like, I don't know anything about this world. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Texas. Texas Instruments is right down the street from me. My brother was into computers, and he he became a digital guy. But I myself don't know anything about it. And so, you know, when I'm hearing the details of why it's hard to make an online game with any resolution in the era of primitive modems, I'm I'm learning something. It's mm-hmm. interesting. And I'm not and I don't feel like it's beyond me. And and, you know, just the, the whole business of reverse engineering and the intellectual property issues with that where they had to have people go off site, I found I found that really, really interesting. What I didn't find interesting was the characters, but I feel like they're trying to fix that. Right. I think to compare it to Mad Men, which is going to be, I think, something that happens to us a lot on this podcast. Oh, probably, because we miss it. <laughs> yeah, deeply. But I think one of the reasons it's hard for me to latch on to what's happening is when the characters describe the issues with the modems or the guy who is copying their game or, you know, don't we all want to make a computer that does blank? It doesn't always feel particularly personal. In fact, it rarely does. Right. In the way that on Mad Men, when we're talking about having your own company or pitching this product that that it's it's deeply connected to what that person is mm-hmm. experiencing and by the way they describe it and the terms they use and the attachment they feel to it we learn a lot about who they are and how they mm-hmm. see the world and so far on halt and catch fire that's been a lot less clear that that the way people talk 
about computers as the way that they feel about themselves, right? I don't think that that's true. It doesn't have to be true. That's not the only way to tell it. But right now, it just feels like a lot of like, here's all the computer explaining. Here's all the feelings stuff. And they're they're very separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was tough, especially last season, was trying to figure out how to mesh these things. And one way was when, you know, in a pinch, Gordon calls his wife Donna, who is herself an accomplished programmer. And she comes to the offices and fixes everything. And it's, like, exciting and fun and I could give two shits like what the mechanics are of that or even if it's real, right? Like, I don't care. But what was cool and what was fun and why I liked that episode and why that made me as interested in Donna as I am is that it was so hers. She felt so attached to it. It was so personal. It was such a big deal to come to her husband's workplace and be like, stand aside, boys. Like, a boss is here, right? Right. And and you really got a lot out of, like, oh, what this means to her, the person, versus, like, oh, cool. I guess that's good for mode. (laughs) Dumbs, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. right? I, I mean, the decision making. I think around a lot of whatever modem stuff is going on. Like, those decisions have happened and have. You know, we're not going to go back and change them. I don't think. I again, obviously, know fucking nothing about modems. But what I do know is like how complicated it can be to feel like the work you do doesn't matter, or that the people you love don't respect you, or that the people who respect you don't like you that much, right? Like, those yeah. are the stories. And I think mm-hmm. if there are ways to emphasize that as part like I think there's I think the show struggles to marry these two ideas do you think Cameron and Donna's relationship will help get at that it seems like they're trying to create this kind of emotional working bond between them and bring out the characters in better ways than they have done maybe with how they presented them in relation to men in the past season I think they're getting there, but I think they're getting there with all the characters. I I think this is a show that by the midpoint of the season is going to have gotten its shit together. Like, I think Mm -hmm. they're really, like, I really feel strongly that they're going in that direction. I like that they've jumped ahead to 1985 and they're changing the fashions, they're changing the pop culture reference points, but they're not just doing that thing that a lot of shows that are period do where it's like, I remember that, you know, like they're Mm -hmm. not doing that. There's always a point to the references. And like, you know, there's a point in this uh, first episode where they're watching the Oscars on TV. It's the 1985 Oscars and the best actor winner was F. Murray Abraham for Amadeus who was playing Salieri. Salieri and Mozart is a great entry point into a lot of the dynamics of what's happening with the companies on this show. And it also strikes to the heart of the insecurities that these programmers feel, and it sort of links them to artists. You know, for me, that's a way in because, Mm -hmm. you know, what I do is a creative pursuit. I wouldn't know what the hell a reverse-engineered computer was before the show explained it to me, but the translation helps me out, Mm -hmm. you know, and the choice of music is always making music a point. Is great. The music is great. And it's not just, hey, listen to this old song. Like, there's always a commentary being made, but it's a subtle commentary. It's not like a hammer on the nose kind of commentary. Yeah. And, like, I just have a good feeling about the show. <laughs> like, I don't think it's there. I don't think it's there, but I like where they're going. I don't think it's there either. I will say one of the things I like about the show is that it's not stupid. It's a really not stupid show. No. And, and the choices all feel pretty deliberate to me, I think, talking about the sort of style direction of the show and costuming and the music and the sort of the way that they're texturizing that universe all feels worthwhile and considered and if some of the story is like struggling to catch up to to these high expectations at least that's where it's going mm-hmm. versus just feeling like eh, let's just do another like it's he's a sheriff he's sad right like <laughs> <laughs> right like another yeah. show that's like yeah. oh he, she's sad an actor sheriff. she's there should doing actually, it her way there should actually God. be a show called sad sheriff <laughs> that's every show <laughs> oh my god uh like every time i get a press release it's like oh 
and the dad is a sheriff. It's like no matter what, no matter what industry everyone else is in, someone's a sheriff. Someone's a shad sheriff. <laughs> someone's a So, right, so, I mean, and, like... <laughs> I'm very relieved to be watching a show that's about anything other than sad sheriffs. Um, and I just, I think there's a lot of things about the show that I don't care for and don't like and think they're they're sort of asleep at the wheel about. But ultimately, I, I don't think it's dum-dum town, right? Like, there are ideas here. And I think if we're struggling to articulate them perfectly, that's that's a fight worth fighting versus let's search for an idea. right? Yeah. I think the show has ideas. It just is not quite sure how to articulate them and in what direction they want those ideas to flow. But there's no crisis of ideas, which is a real mark in the pro column for me. Well, there was a moment uh, There was a moment in that first episode between Scoot McNary and Lee Pace when they're on the elevator after, after mm-hmm. the guy gives them the checks. That felt like the key to where the show could eventually go, which is like the actual details of what happened with their companies, with their products, with the finances and all of that stuff. I'm not as on top of that as I would be with something like a Mad Men or a show set in the world of, you know, film or television or something like that. But I understand from their emotions what happened. And I understand what's at stake for both of them just by the way they're behaving, like the way they're standing, the what they're doing with their face. And, you know, the more of that that the show can do, the closer it's going to get to being a great show rather than just a good and interesting one. The TV show we're discussing is Halt and Catch Fire, and you can watch it Sunday nights at 10 p.m. on AMC. We have a question from Lisa this week. There's a lot of violence on TV shows like Game of Thrones, particularly in this Sunday night's episode. Spoiler alert, (laughs) when we see Stannis' daughter Shireen burned at the stake by her own mother and father. Are we implicated in any way in this violence just by the fact that we're observing it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in the sense that you make a decision to watch Mm -hmm. this. And I don't think it means that you have to stop watching Game of Thrones if there's some violence on it that offends you in a particular way. But I do think you have to own your offense. Like, if it's uncomfortable, you have to think about why it's uncomfortable and whether it's the show or if it's you. And I think there's a tendency, whenever anybody complains about violence on Game of Thrones, particularly sexual violence, but just violence in general, people who like the show immediately jump down their throats. Well, if you don't like it, don't watch it. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's not that simple, people. You know, let's not oversimplify it. I think it's possible to admire the totality of a show while taking issue with particular parts of it. That, to me, is the proper response. But yeah, I think that if you are offended, if you're upset by something, if you feel like the show is being exploitive or gross or disingenuous about the violence and you still keep watching it, then, yeah, I think you're implicated. You should stop watching that show, you know, and you should complain about it on social media if you feel that way about it. (laughs) I also think if you're watching a child burned at the stake and you're not bothered by that, that should be a real wake-up call, right? Right? Like, then you need to, like, examine either how closely you're bothering to watch the shows you're watching, and if you're not watching it closely enough to be affected by it, like, I encourage you to find other pursuits. Or if you're so inured to it that this kind of really extreme, upsetting scenario doesn't have any kind of flicker of, like, yikes, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I, you know, as somebody who watches as much TV as we all watch, I think we all have to be a little bit... I can't let it all in, right? Like, it's all... Like, I'd never get anything else done. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that scene is upsetting. Of course it's upsetting. It's, I mean, it's supposed to be upsetting, although I think sometimes, particularly Game of Thrones struggles with 
what it wants to convey and what it actually conveys. I think there are often a, right. there's a big gap there. Uh, and it, They're you, not in control of the material right. and in a way be, that they I think they think they are. Right. And I, I find that as a viewer to be extremely frustrating. They're so close. Well, they're to hear so them talk close. about they're such an intelligent show. They're so close, but a lot of times they're not there. Right. And so to hear them talk about like, well, obviously the scene is this. And it's like, oh my God, that was not obvious at all. No. And this is not just a matter of interpretation. This is like not at all what was communicated. I'm thinking, obviously, of um, Cersei and Jamie. The rape scene? Uh, yeah. That first one. You say that like there's just one. You know? <laughs> that, that rape scene. <laughs> yeah. That said, like, you know, it is, I hate this excuse, and I can't believe I'm making it, but I like, it is pretend, right? And so I think people sometimes feel like they can't stop watching something that's popular if they stop liking it. Like, yeah. stop, right? Like, <laughs> I, I get a lot yeah. of stay tuned questions like, yeah, I just don't like it anymore. It's like, Walk away. Like, right. I think especially yeah. for this season of Game of Thrones, like, if you stop liking it, drop it. Like, same right. for American Horror Story. Like, I think there's there are seasons or certainly episodes where it's just like, God, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, don't. If it's that good, the people who love you will welcome you back. Like, it's just it's not worth it. Like, and I think if you're having the kind of trepidation of like, oh, God, am I like participating in a culture of violence to a level that I find uncomfortable? And you're getting that from watching a TV show. You should stop watching that TV show. Yeah. I mean, I certainly hit that wall with Sons of Anarchy where it became just too much for me. Um, and the, yeah. the narrative artistry that I found interesting early on became so overshadowed by the unbelievable level of violence. And then I couldn't I couldn't make that cost benefit work for no, me anymore. No, it wasn't. And we were talking a lot about art, about the idea of putting a frame around violence and, and, and how you can distance, whether you want the audience to feel as if the violence is happening to them or if you want them to stand back from it and look at it as something that is figurative or abstract. And you can tell, like even if you don't discuss shows or, t- or movies in that way, you can tell if the show is able to do that, like if they have the intellectual capacity to do that, like do they control the material or do they not? And there's an absolute control over the material in a great TV show where there's never a point where you're going, why did they do that to me? Where you're wondering what were they thinking or where they, you read an interview with the showrunner and they say, well, like you were joking, you know, obviously, well, it's like, no, it wasn't obvious. That's what you were trying to do. It seemed like you were trying to rub my nose in it. That's what it felt like. And you hear that a lot. You'll hear that a lot with discussions of violence. And, well, you know, it's horrible violence. We wanted it to be uncomfortable for people. It's like, yeah, but you also there's a kind of extreme violence that is meant to be, quote, unquote, awesome, you know? Right. And oh, like, sure. There's let's, some and let's not like, be disingenuous about that. There's definitely a tremendous amount of the violence on Game of Thrones that is meant to be titillating. Yeah. And exciting. And, you know... I certainly all like the sword fighting stuff. This is not meant to be like a referendum on men's morality, right? Like, <laughs> no. it's not. No. And and people getting their heads like squished and the gold point. I mean, you know, yeah. this is not eyeballs popping out right. and lens being like, hacked this off. This is not and, about yeah. like a series of lethal injections. And I'm like, fine with that. I'm fine. It's like own it. That's all I'm saying is whatever you're doing. No, two parts. One is know what you're doing. And two is own it. And, like, I think we can all tell if a show knows what it's doing. And once they've done it, they own it. And sometimes I wonder about Game of Thrones. I think I'm also, I care so much more about story. And I also care a tremendous amount about dialogue, which is not, it's possible to enjoy shows that you think have bad dialogue, right? I think we can all agree that that's Mm -hmm. possible. I'm somebody who finds that very difficult. And I think in terms of story, like, I can accept and, and certainly, like, tolerate and, 
I hesitate to say enjoy, but like get on board with violence when I feel like it's really in service of character, really in service of story, and it's showing us something enriching and understanding that we couldn't get in any other way. It has to be an extension of the worldview of whatever it is you're watching. Like, does this show, like, what kind of universe are we living in? What is this show's point of view on what it means to be alive? Right. Like, they got to define that, and then you have a frame around the violence. Right. I think for me, like, with Sons of Anarchy, it got to a point where it was like, okay, the level of extreme violence here is no longer illuminating anything new. Whereas I think on something like Breaking Bad, which also had tremendous violence. But you didn't see as much as you thought you saw. That's another interesting thing about that show. Um, But it, it was always in service of story and it always did tell you a lot about a character you talk about implicating the audience like breaking bad totally implicated the audience because the entire point of walter white's descent was how much more of this guy can you take and continue to watch the show like how many excuses do you have to make for this guy to see him as a hero and interestingly all the way up to the end there were people who thought he was completely justified in whatever he did like oh, it was over, almost oh, like a, it was like an the, experiment no know? exactly there was like a weird like oh my god america behold your reflection in recoil like and people was, are like it looks awesome to me yeah I'm like this is my bro yeah I'm like, oh. <laughs> too bad there's all these bitches around who are such a drag yeah they're just cramping his style <laughs> yeah Anyway, you're only medium implicated. Yeah, that's true. There's a, like an implication. <laughs> there should be an implication scale. Maybe we can get somebody on that. We'll get right on that. <laughs> that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter as Matt Zoller Sites. And you can catch us all here again next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.